Hollywood Tower Hotel, front desk. You're listening to That's Pretty Dark. The podcast where we talk about all of the entertainment that scared us as children. And still haunts us as adults. So grab your flashlight and join us as we take a frightfully nostalgic look over our shoulders. And under our beds. And in our closets. And together we'll realize, whoa, that's pretty that's dark. Pretty dark. <laughs> well... Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Yeah. Thems and theys. Cats and dogs. Cats and dogs. Hymns and halls. We're here to stop the hymn and haunt and tell you that it's episode <laughs> uh, movie night. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm going to rephrase all of it. That's, that's Great start. Okay. You're rubbing off on me today. Oh, no. Um, we've got our sleepy ADHD brains working really hard for Boy, you. We're up way too Coming late. out with a movie night episode. Movie so night. It's our first one. Super excited about uh, a little known made for TV classic. Mm. I say it's classic and little known Tower of Terror. It is based on Disney's Tower of Terror, the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror, in what was then called MGM Studios. And it is just a really fun family horror, <laughs> basically. I can attest. It's a very good movie. Yeah, it's just, it's well done. And uh, I'm Christian. Hey, I'm Kaylin. I'm terrified. You should be. I'm towered. I'm not towered. I just watched it last night in preparation for this recording session. Love it. I remembered so many of the details. Mm -hmm. Like, they were very familiar to me. I felt like I've watched yeah. it in the past five to ten years. Yeah. But I don't remember watching it. <laughs> I don't have a memory of sitting down and watching this movie, really, ever. I can't think of a time when I sat down and watched yeah. this on purpose. Same. But I knew it. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it's one of those that just sticks. Yeah. So many of the little, like, nuances of the characters, I was like, that, that's so familiar. Yeah. Why do I know that? Yeah, I have it right there in, the, in my notes where I basically just said it's a film that lives for some reason in the depths of our memory. And we don't really know why. Yep. It originally aired on October 26th, 1997 on The Wonderful World of Disney as part of The Wonderful World of Disney. And it was part of their Halloween lineup that year. Wonderful. And I'll tell you more about that in a little bit. But Sweet. Um, it was written and directed by... Our friend, our dear beloved friend, I wish, uh, DJ McHale. No, he's our friend. We know him personally. Oh, I wish so much. But he is the creator of Are You Afraid of the Dark? That's his kind of claim to fame. But also, like, he's a prolific author. I knew he was a writer, but he's written, like, very extensive children's book series. Oh, I didn't know that either. Yeah. Um, the Pendragon series. Wow. Like, he is a children's writer essentially. Hmm. I think I mentioned this later too, but he kind of got out of TV because TV stopped doing kids drama as much. And they, you know, fell into this comedy, yeah. like three camera sitcom type thing, live audience, whatever. Interesting. Um, so he started writing books. So he's an author and he's written all kinds of fun stuff. How cool that is to like know your own craft so well that you're like, exactly. this is no longer for me. Yeah. I'm going to go do something else. And not only that, but like they specifically asked him to direct this film because of the work that he did with Are You Afraid of the Dark? He was so good at it. He knew what he was doing with this like spooky horror. That makes sense. It's not gore. It's not out there over the top. It's yeah. It's very specific. And he was the master. He's been doing that and specializing in horror for children at least since 1991. Yeah, five to six years he was already doing Are You Afraid yeah. of the Dark whenever this came along, Wow, this opportunity. That was after the first original Midnight Society, the first yeah. run of the, was, of the show. That he, he was known for this. 
um, which is awesome. Yeah, cool. Um, and I'm going to tell you up front, like, we're not going to go minute by minute through the movie. Like, I'm going to leave as much of it as I can for people. If you haven't seen this movie to go watch it, I'm going to try not to spoil it too directly because I just think it's fun and it would be a really fun Halloween watch. So if you're listening to this during October and, you know, you're looking for something to take you back and like to have kind of a nostalgic Halloween movie night, then this is a good one to add to the list, especially yeah. if you haven't seen it. It checks all the boxes for like yeah, a fun, totally. spooky Halloween movie. It's really yeah. well done. So I'm basically going to talk around it <laughs> for our entire time together. I'm going to tell you all about it, behind it, in it, nice. through it, around it, about some stuff about the attraction because I'm a Disney geek, so you can't help but include some of that stuff. Hell yeah. Um, when you, you talk about really the first film that was based on a Disney attraction and this, you know, doing it this way, it was kind of the flagship for other movies like the haunted mansion movie with eddie murphy um and even all the way to today doing the jungle cruise movie like this was the first time disney had right. based an entire movie on its attraction don't forget pirates of the caribbean all of that like that was <laughs> that that evolved beyond yeah. you know the attraction but it sure. was based on the attraction so yeah totally uh, this this opened some new doors mm -hmm. for disney i guess is what i'm trying to say that's pretty cool it's pretty cool <laughs> that was the next thing i was gonna get to basically you know the internet kind of agrees that this film was essentially a commercial for um, the Disney parks and the Tower of Terror of because the Tower of Terror had only opened a couple years prior in 1994. Oh. So it opened in the summer of 94 and this movie was being made presumably around 96 to come out in 97. Interesting. But still worth the watch. It's not just, you know, it's not a big long commercial. Like it's, it's not in your face, but it's definitely to catch the eye of children and to intrigue people and make them want to come. Well, they, they picked the right guy to do exactly. it. Exactly. I mean, it could have just been a commercial for it. But it ended up being a pretty good movie. Yeah, I guess that's kind of it. Like, he he drew out as much as he could from it and made it something else, which is awesome. It has a very, like, Clue-esque. Yes. I'm trying to, like, find a place to fit it in, like, the categories of my mind. I know, because it's so, it's unique, but it's so familiar at the same time in this yeah. landscape. But it's also, it was made for TV, so I feel like that a lot of people did miss out on it because of that. So that's why we're here yeah. today, to yeah. bring some awareness and make sure that you and maybe your kids go and watch it. Tower of Terror awareness. Tower of Terror awareness. So <laughs> because it was kind of obscure, I guess, it's really difficult to find like the actual for sure facts and information about this film. It was pretty tricky when I started to go into it. And a lot of the shots in the film have the attraction in them. So I was confused on whether or not it was filmed on location, like how much right. of it was filmed on location, what's the deal. And it's almost impossible to tell. So I actually, so I used to be a cast member at Disney World. I did the Disney College program. Um, I could talk about that forever also, but because of that, I happen to be in some groups that are like cast member only. Yeah. And so I tried to <laughs> leverage that and get some insight from people that may have been in the parks at the time. And in doing that, a whole ton of conflicting information came my way. Interesting. So there were a lot of cast members that were at the Tower of Terror or on Sunset Boulevard in MGM, which is now Disney's Hollywood Studios Park. One person told me that the attraction was not finished when they were filming the movie, and so they couldn't film there for that reason. Somebody else told me that the scenes at the gate of the hotel in the film, they said that it was filmed at an old hospital that looked like the same vibe as the hotel. So I had all these things coming at me, and I really didn't know what to believe. And 
lo and behold, once I um, started talking to these cast members about it, there are all these people that are really passionate about the attraction. And I found several interviews that DJ Mikhail himself has done on podcasts, hey. right? Should have looked to podcasts first, I guess. Mm. Um, but two that I'm specifically going to reference a lot of his um, quotes and like facts from, it's the Disney with a Z, Disney Coast to Coast podcast and the Beyond the Mouse podcast. So they're both like Disney podcasts. And each of these are from a couple years ago, but still it kind of had him talking about it all in one place and it made it really easy to cut through like what was real, what was not. Yeah. I'm going to bust some myths for you right quick Ooh. because all that stuff was thrown at me and I didn't know what to believe. I got some myths and I want you to bust them. Hey, I'm here to do it. The ride was operational at the time of filming, which I was pretty sure of, but that one guy really yeah. worried me. Um, so I wanted to check, but... You can't believe guys. You can't. You just can't normally believe can't. guys on the internet. Mm. Believe us guys, though. Us guys, but not those guys. <laughs> that one guy, particularly. Um, yes. So the ride was operational, and that ultimately was the reason why it ended up being filmed the way that it was. Because the ride was operational, they ended up constructing an exact replica of the lobby of the attraction, like inch by inch. Like the production designer went with DJ to the attraction and wow. scoped out inch by inch the entire lobby and rebuilt it on sound stages in LA. That's crazy because it does look exactly like the ride. It looks Everything exactly about the same. it. It would be almost impossible to tell the differences, which is kind of fun if you are a really big Disney Parks person to yeah. kind of try to spot check and see. Because um, there are different like lamps and fixtures and some of that is different. I'm sure. But for the most part, like the, the dimensions and everything, the space and the way that you move through it is pretty mm -hmm. much identical, which is wild. And the reason they had to do that is because Disney doesn't like to shut down rides ever. Um, I know this having been an attractions hostess at Disney World, they get really... They're very specific about times that the ride goes down. Like if I was, I worked at in Tomorrowland, but if one of my attractions went down, I had to call the maintenance number, tell them how long it was down for minute to minute, um, because they're trying to get a certain number of people through the attractions every single day. Yeah. And not only that, but this was a movie that was promoting Disney and promoting the attraction. So it's not a very Disney look to like shut down the attraction and say, oh, sorry, family that saved up for three years to come see the parks and this particular ride, you can't ride it today because- right. We're shut down to film a movie. Yeah. So that doesn't fly. And essentially, Disney had offered to let DJ film basically from like midnight to like 5 a.m. That would have been the only time he could get in. Yeah. And so he didn't end up going for that. Instead, he did the soundstage thing. But there are some establishing shots and some outdoor things. I'm sure his crew was very thankful. Oh, man. And yeah, I can't imagine it would have just been an entire film of, of overnights. Oh, God. So. Yeah. As, as a crew member, film crew member who has worked pure overnights for an entire movie yeah you don't want to do that mm -mm. it's awful you it don't want to really, do it to anybody you, you become less than human yeah but yeah like i said i've ridden this ride dozens of times in my life yes. my favorite anecdote personally is that i rode this attraction 13 times on my 13th birthday Ugh. that was my like goal everywhere going oh no see when i was a kid i could do it now there's no way yeah. it's like two or three times and i'm done but as a kid i rode it 13 times on my 13th birthday wow. um i got a t-shirt it was a whole thing and i really <laughs> hope and pray that 
the pictures never, ever see the light of day. Ooh. I'm sure they exist. <laughs> hey, Kelly, you got them pics? Oh, she will show you. <laughs> and I mean, I think you and I have ridden this together. I think we have. I believe so, yeah. Uh, what, a couple years ago? Oh, God, like four or five. No, no three or four. Like three or four. Three. three or four. Anyway, nobody cares. Four. But we've been to Disney <laughs> yeah. together, so we've ridden it together. You probably have memories. Like, this is, it, it's been open since 94, so I feel like a lot of people our age, oh, if they yeah. go to Disney... They have memories of this attraction. I didn't write it till I was uh, on my senior trip, my senior high school. Oh trip. my gosh! Because I was always so scared. Of it. Wow, I like drop rides. It did not. I scare like roller me. coasters, but I don't like other kinds of drops. Wow, who knew? I did. <laughs> like I mentioned earlier, DJ was really the first filmmaker to base a film on a Disney attraction, and so it mm. opened the door for all of those other things to come after him, yeah. which is awesome. Nice. And he said that they actually gave him a lot of creative freedom when it came to the plot of the film. Um, he drew from those characters. So on the attraction, you do see five kind of iconic looking characters that board yes. the elevator. And the whole Twilight Zone experience is that they went missing. The, the elevator stopped working, was zapped by lightning, whatever. And they didn't have backstories. They just, you could see them. There's a little girl, like a nanny looking lady. There was like a... I don't know how to describe them, really like jazzy looking folks from the 30s, essentially. And they jazzy. all have their little personas, I guess. But you don't know anything about them individually. They're very classic stereotypes. Stereotypes. There's a word. In a way. Yeah. But like I said, you don't know anything about them. So he had all of those characters to build off of for his story. Nice. I'm going to throw this out there for if you've written it and you didn't quite make the connection. The, the guest experience of the attraction, specifically in Florida, is when you go into the attraction, you are in this abandoned hotel and the service elevator is operational. So you yourself are riding the service elevator of this at this hotel where this elevator has broken down and people have gone missing. And so that's why you go into the basement and all that stuff, which I understood. But the way the ride works and the mechanics of the ride, you go up in the service elevator. And so everybody's expecting that drop right when you go down. Sorry to spoil the, the attraction for you if you haven't been, but you know, <laughs> you've had 27 years. So oh. <laughs> you expect it to drop immediately, but it doesn't. Instead, you move forward first. So you move forward through the twilight zone. And that's what that's meant to represent is that you are in the service elevator, but suddenly you move forward through the twilight zone and that's where you get to the elevator shaft where you do your drop. So I thought it was kind of cool just the the way that it's designed and it's designed totally different from the other Tower of Terror attractions in Florida, and, or sorry, in California and um, Paris. Hmm. So totally different. Thing. So those just go up and down? Pretty much, yeah. They don't have the forward motion. Okay. Weird. Do they still have the Twilight Zone theme? Well, they did. So the one, both of them were created with the same theming as in Florida, but DJ talked a lot about how the rides are different, like the mechanics. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons for that is that when he met with the Imagineers before creating the film, when he went down to Florida and did his scouting and scoping and out and everything, um, they were basically telling him this is the most expensive attraction Disney's ever built. And you can tell, like, even the queue for that ride, yeah. you can tell it's, like, dripping money. Like, there's just so much money that went into making that attraction. Yeah. And so the Imagineers were saying it was too expensive. Like, there will never be another one. And then flash forward to 2004, and there is another one in California. It just nice. was not constructed the same way. Wow. And now, as of, I think, 2018... The one in California is actually, they've changed all the theming. It no longer has anything to do with Tower of Terror or Twilight Zone. It is now um, a Guardians of the Galaxy attraction. Gotcha. See, I knew that was going to happen, but I thought it was going to happen to the Florida one. Oh, no. And I, I mean, I hope they never change that one. I really hope and pray. And I, I you know, we'll see. But I'm mean, in California, they needed to 
spice up California adventure. So, because yeah, sure, sure. Um, not to like derail or change the topic, but like we have a, a Twilight Zone themed mm-hmm. abandoned slash haunted hotel themed ride that's twilight zone specific Mm -hmm. and then we make a movie to promote the ride that's about the hotel yes that has nothing to do with the twilight zone yes absolutely nothing very true to me that's always been interesting okay well if that's interesting to you i don't have it in my notes but i do know exactly why that is and i can tell you please tell me so the twilight zone tower of terror um when they constructed it you know it's the hollywood tower hotel that's the fictional yeah. hotel that it's built on or based on and dj asked the same question when he started to do his research he was like yeah. are we going to need to do a twilight zone thing like what's going on basically what he was told is that it the twilight zone partnership if you want to call it that was mm-hmm. added after the fact or as they were developing the attraction because everything in disney's mgm studios needed to have a film or a show or some type of entertainment medium attached right and for me and dj and the other hosts of these other podcasts personally i felt like the hollywood tie was strong enough like it's a, a glitzy hollywood oh yeah for sure you know i feel like that made it fit right in that's sunset boulevard in a nutshell right it's this retro hollywood vibe mm-hmm. so the hotel fits in yeah. without of course any of that so i really i mean as much as i love twilight zone and that idea like it wasn't necessary yeah it fits in with that dark yeah. underside of hollywood. of the glitz and glamour of hollywood you're right there's so much darkness there. I thought it was plenty. But you can lose yourself in Hollywood. But they added the Twilight Zone partnership to make it fit better in the park. Then when it came time to make the film, it was a lot of, they couldn't get the rights essentially, or they, you know, it would have been To make it a Twilight a Zone thing. thing? Yes. It would have been too, okay. That to makes get sense. the rights, to, to tie it all in together. So the film has absolutely nothing to do with the Twilight Zone. But DJ McHale, like he even mentions, you know, he's a big fan of the Twilight Zone as well. Oh, but yeah. he was honestly glad that he didn't have to add that layer. He said it took out a whole like layer of complication from yeah. his planning and his, yeah. you know, creating the storyline. Cool. I'm glad you told me that. Yeah. Um, I always wondered and now I don't have to. Thank you. I'm really glad that I could share that piece of knowledge with you. And speaking of trivia, I'm not going to go into a whole lot of trivia around the Tower of Terror because there's also an excellent episode of this show called Behind or Beyond the Attraction, Behind the Attraction. It's one of those two. It's on Disney Plus. And there are episodes about the Tower of Terror, the Haunted Mansion. You told me to watch that. Yeah, I did a while back. I need to watch that still. It's pretty, pretty fantastic. But I'll share a piece of trivia with the listener. Um, in case you don't have Disney Plus or don't care and don't want to watch it, this is kind of a fun thing that you can pull out if you happen to go to the Disney parks with your buddies and whatever. If you want to be cool at the next party you go to, especially the next Halloween party, you're like, hey, ladies. Yeah, I got a fun fact. And, and guys. This is the kind of party people that we are. I just want that to be clear. Yeah. Um, this is, is how I construct my personality around other people because I don't know how to do it. So I just fall back on things like this. Absolutely. The Hollywood Tower Hotel, the building, the ride, the attraction building stands at exactly 199 feet tall because at 200 feet in Florida, you are required to put a red warning light on top of the building to warn planes, etc. You told me that. I think when we were in Disney World. <laughs> yeah. See, this is something that I knew, and it's one of my favorite facts. So I thought I would fit it in, but it's also included in that special, which I thought was really funny because I was hearing from I the Imagineers. Like we were sitting there looking up at Tower of Terror going, like, cool, I think the wait time isn't too long. We should get on. You were like, do you want to hear a fun fact? 
or something like oh, that. Oh, 100%. I, that or we're standing like in line trying to amuse ourselves and you're like, yes. so you want to hear some trivia? <laughs> oh my God. And I think I did oh that at a God. ton of places with you guys because I was just, this is all I know. That's so fun. It's fun to know stuff though, isn't it kids? It's fun to learn. It's fun to learn. Anyway, no, that's cool. I, I do love that because to put a big blinking flashing light on top of your attraction exactly. ruins so much. Hopefully they never like lower that threshold. I mean, and that's the show expectation of Disney. It's one of their keys, basically. Like when you're a cast member, you know the, the four keys. Now there are five. But the one of the keys is show. And so that would have been very much against the show. It wouldn't fit with the theming. And yeah. I mean, I, again, I'm speaking to listeners and I don't know how much you care about Disney parks, but they do this in so many places to the point where, for example, if you're in Epcot and you're looking across the Seven Seas Lagoon at the World Showcase, there are places in the World Showcase where you can stand and you see the backside of other buildings in other countries. And they themed the structure of the building on the backside to look like the country you're in from your vantage point only. That is insane. Yeah. Disney does all kinds of stuff like that all the time. So they got a really stellar cast to join this film. The budget was around $4 million. So that's still not a ton at all um, for a Disney movie. We have Steve Gutenberg, who plays a reporter named Buzzy Crocker. Steve has had roles on recent TV comedies like The Goldbergs and Veronica Mars. Veronica Mars is not a comedy. Mm -hmm. In my notes, TV comedies such as The Goldbergs and shows like Veronica Mars. Okay. Among a staggering list of TV and film appearances. What's the main thing I know him from? Oh, I'll tell you. Okay. I will tell you. I'm going to, I hope that it's the same thing that I know him from. I didn't look anything up for a reason. I really hope it's the same thing because I'm excited if so. Okay, hit me. He provided his voice for one episode of Rocket Power. I had to throw that out there too. Okay. Love it. Okay. But if your childhood was anything like mine, you best know Steve from his role as Ashley Olsen's affluent father, Roger Calloway, starring opposite Kirstie Alley in one of the Olsen twins' best movies of all time, the 1995 It Takes Two. I, yes, I have seen okay, that. Okay, thank God. I'm very glad that that's your I... experience as well. If not, I was going to talk directly to the listeners for the rest of this episode because basically every woman that's my age has an affinity for Mary-Kate and Ashley movies. I've got an affinity for Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen. What are you even saying? I always had major crushes on the Olsen twins. Good. And still do, even though they're walking skeleton people. Well, God bless them. It's not their they've fault. They've had a rough life. I know. You know what they've been through in their life? I do, I love sadly. them. I love everything about them. But this movie, It Takes Two. He was the dad. They were trying to set him up, right? Yes. And I wanted nothing more than to be social worker Diane Barrows falling in love on the horseback ride, mm. having the disgusting food fight. Like that was just, for some reason, that was peak romance to me at the time in 1995. Mm -hmm. And for many years after, because I wore out that VHS tape, like totally just annihilated it because I watched it so often. That's, that is peak romance. That's that's like uh, 10 things I hate about you when yes. you're having the, the paint fight, the paintball yes, fight. Yes, it's just like that. Yes. Absolutely. That is, that There's is something it. about that's it. That's all it. I've that's ever all wanted. anybody has ever wanted. Mm -hmm. And speaking of which, I'm so glad that you agree with me here because I was mm. already prepared. I have written points to fight you in case I needed hey, to. You know what? We should start a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we agree on some stuff and we have some. You know, we talk products. about a lot of the same stuff all the time. I don't think that I will ever have another opportunity to fit this piece of information into our podcast at all. Probably not. So go ahead. So I'm taking a pause because I need to talk about it. I won't cut this out. This is, hey, thanks. This is one of my absolute favorite film moments of all time and tr like film 
concepts, mm. I should say, film plot points, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, we're here to indulge nostalgia. So here is my nostalgia, like romance thing that I love. If you remember this movie, you're going to remember Kirstie Alley's character, Diane, describing the can't eat, can't sleep, reach for the stars, over the fence, World Series kind yes. of stuff. Yes. That inspired me so much as a child. I uh, like that was all I wanted. I knew that I didn't want to be in love or have love unless it was that. And of course, I ruined my entire life by forgetting all of this when I was of age and settling for whatever mm -hmm. came my way. <laughs> um, but it meant a lot to me as a kid. And I always think back on it fondly. Plus a baseball reference. We got a baseball reference in here. We got some of my favorite nostalgic stuff. Oof. Truly, to me, though, just the most romantic thing I've ever heard. And I always remember um, Amanda. That was the Mary-Kate uh, character in this film. Because Amanda was kind of mocking her and, like, chewing gum. And she's like, that can't eat, can't sleep, reach for the stars, over the fence, world series kind of stuff, right? And Diane's mm -hmm. like, yeah, you'll, you'll understand it one day, basically. Nice. I love it. I love summer camp. I love the 90s. It Takes Two is just top-notch. But I understand that we're here to talk about Tower of Terror. So you can email me if you love Mary-Kate Nashley and we can talk about it all day. Yeah, slide into her DMs. And truly, I think that there's room for them on this podcast, though, because if you've ever seen Mary-Kate Nashley's Sleepover Party and there's an entire song about monsters. I have seen that. Well, hey, I've seen so much of that I'm because so I grew up with sisters. Yeah. I spent so much time hanging out with like my sister and like her friends Oh, then who yeah. are all girls. Yep. And uh, Maybe we'll have to talk about the case of Thorn Mansion one day. One of the mysteries. Ooh, wait, it's, is that an Olsen twins thing? Yes, it is. Okay. Anyway, Tower of Terror. So next cast member to talk about, we've talked through Steve extensively and even less about him in his description. He invented enough. the Gutenberg Press. Very good. Very nice. Very That's nice. right. <laughs> so the top name probably in this film is Kirsten Dunst. Of course. She really needs no introduction. She plays the lead, Anna, who is the uh, niece of the um, reporter Buzzy Crocker. Mm -hmm. Kirsten is one of my favorite actresses of all time. She actually portrays not only one, but two of my favorite film characters ever. This and Mary Jane's Spider-Man. <laughs> not quite. Uh, my favorites are Claire Colburn in Elizabethtown, which is probably my favorite movie of all time with uh, Orlando Bloom mm -hmm. and she plays Lux Lisbon in Sofia Coppola's The Virgin Suicides. There we go. So those are two of my absolute favorites and that's all the Kirsten Dunst right there. Two classics. Two classics. So good. She's just amazing. I love her. She truly really is very good. Other than that, I mean, she's been, as you said, Spider-Man, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. She actually voiced young Anastasia in Anastasia. No way. You didn't know that. I figured I'd throw that in there. And that was just after she came off of this film. We're going to do Anastasia. Oh, we should. And if you haven't seen her most recent On Becoming a God in Central Florida, that's worth the watch too. It's very good. I haven't, so I will. Highly recommend. She's just really good. She's good at getting into character and making you believe she is who she says she is. As a purity to like what she brings to her role. Yeah. It's authentic. Very honest. Yeah. It feels authentic. So love it. Yeah. Uh, in addition to Steve and Kirsten, we have Melora Hardin. That's who I was thinking of because yeah. of the And everybody <laughs> should know her from, yes, The Office. And also, Lindsay Ridgway. Do you know Lindsay Ridgway? I mean, from this movie, yeah, but I don't know her from anything else. So she plays Sally Shine, which is the little um, the little girl ghost. Mm -hmm. And she's probably best remembered for her role in Boy Meets World. She was the second Morgan Matthews. So not the early one, but later episodes. Didn't put it together. Wow. Yes. Amazing. Which I love Boy Meets World, so that's... You know, that's awesome in oh, and of yeah. itself. That was my eat bagel bites and chill out. Like, for sure. All summer long. I mean, my whole life, pretty much. I got the DVDs in college and haven't really stopped. So good. Such a good show. I love it. 
But in addition to that, she also voiced another character that lives deep within my mind that I've brought to Christian's attention recently. Hmm. Um, she was the Hollywood starlet character, much like her character in this film, yeah. Darla Dimple, in Cats Don't Dance. No way! Specifically, Lindsay voiced Darla's singing voice. Okay. Which is so impressive because that song is really difficult to sing. She did a great job. Wow. She's very talented. Very talented. But I guess at some point, since we're here for a movie night episode, I should stop talking about the ride and the cast and like talk about the movie. All right. Wow. So do you want to know about the movie now that we're in this deep? Do you want to? I mean, I think we can probably wait. Yeah. I mean, who really wants to hear about a movie? <laughs> um, well, so no, what we've been doing so far is we, we've been getting uh, our snacks ready. Okay. We've been making some desserts. We've been baking cookies. We've been popping some popcorn. That's right. Now we're settling in for the movie. That's right. You know, prep gets a bad rap. Prep is important. Very, very important for so many things. We got our blankets. We got our positions on the couch. We got our whatever, our pallets on the floor. <laughs> we are comfortable. The lights are off. We have the perfect Ooh. mood. The Ooh. smells are perfect. <laughs> our drinks are perfect. We got pretzels in our popcorn. Man, new snack alert. Mm -hmm. Put pretzels in your popcorn. You're welcome. I, I always heard of M&M's. M&M's too. Maybe pretzel. What about pretzel M&M's? Oh my God. <laughs> pretzel M&M's and popcorn? You're ready for this. My mind just exploded. Unfortunately, we don't actually have any of that. And fortunate for you because we're not going to, you know, be chomping in your ears. But we are going to talk about the movie just a little bit. All right. Like I said, I'm not going to go bit by bit because I really want people to watch it. But yeah. in the film... Buzzy Crocker, the news reporter that I mentioned, he's blacklisted from this newspaper called the Los Angeles Banner because he published a story that turned out to be false. And so now with Anna, his niece, as his assistant, he's kind of creating these faux stories for like the grocery store tabloid. So like the National Enquirer kind of thing. Yeah. So he's just kind of fabricating these stories. He's become a hack. At, right. Yeah. So it's not something that a true journalist would want to be doing. Yeah. He's embraced the hack lifestyle. And I mean, it's not really his choice. He would be working for the banner if he had anything to say about it. But right. Right. instead, he's been, again, blacklisted. So he's reduced to this, essentially. Ooh, a reduction of a man. A fun note on his character name. So Buzzy Crocker is a pretty, like... Um, unique, specific name. Buzzy Crocker, yeah. DJ said that the reason that the character is named Buddy... Wow. The reason that the character is named <laughs> Buzzy Crocker is because he wrote a NYU student film about a reporter mm -hmm. and named the reporter Buzzy Crocker. So this is an ode to his own student film from NYU. That's amazing. So good. God bless you, DJ Mikhail. He's so great. And... Like most things do, the plot of this movie actually ended up coming down to the budget. Yeah. We we know, you know, more than... We, we've seen some of the backside of this, and it is unfortunate for us as creatives and storytellers how much in the film industry depends on money and budget and what you have the time and funds to do. <laughs> Even podcasting. <laughs> Even podcasting. Oh, God. So... Like, DJ, when he was developing the story, he, he said that he knew he didn't have the resources to pull off, like, a full period piece. Because the hotel is, you know, meant to be, like, a 1930s hotel. Um, that's when it was new. and Yeah. I mean, I wasn't upset about what he was able oh, to no, do. Oh, no. Me at either. Not at all. In the, in the period aspects of the, of the exactly. movie. Exactly. So he, well done for a 90s film. Yeah. He had to make the, the period moments count. He had to make those flashbacks really mean a lot and carry the film a long way, which I have a really fun, fun fact for filmmakers that I'll get to um, as we as we move through. I'm excited. But like I said, he didn't have the resources to do a full period piece. So that made the decision easy. It's going to be 
based in the present day in the 90s, and then it's going to be based on an investigation of something that happened in the 30s. So it gives you the opportunity to flash back without requiring all of the set design and people and manpower it would take to do a period piece. Mm -hmm. And then he was like, well, who investigates things? Journalists investigate things. So the whole plot kind of came together based on those those facts. That's cool. And the narrative pretty quickly kind of fell into place once he understood the attraction and kind of drew from those characters I mentioned earlier that you see in the elevator. So upon rewatching this movie, obviously I'm like, if you know me at all, I'm instantly hooked. I'm smitten because it's got like within the first opening sequence, you've got the witchy table and there's all this like seance spell casting going on at this table you've got this big band party in the 1930s like a swing dance soiree sort of thing and in the moment where you first meet buzzy and anna which is pretty dark the first thing you see is the light glinting off of this knife in the darkness yeah and you find out it's it's like so slasher-esque like it is so reminiscent of a slasher movie but you find out that it's just buzzy trying to stage one of his like bogus photos so that's where it, it leads you to but everything in the first few moments it's got that eerie like haunting creepy sort of vibe with the you know flashback big band ghostly moment and so immediately it's well done it's it has me hooked it has that intent there's this something intangible about the 90s film like a Mm -hmm. 90s film to us i think in particular probably because we were young children at the time maybe but everything's just like a little bit fuzzy around the edges and like things make a little more sense than they do in the real world and like it's it's just perfect but it's distinct from the 80s it is everything's still shot on film Yes. They're probably still using a lot, a lot of the same cameras. I don't know if, if anything was updated from the 80s to the 90s as far as tech goes. Right. But something about the set dressing, the style, the, yes. the, col- style. the coloring is different. Yeah. There are specific distinctions about 90s cinema yes. that I, I don't understand what it is, but I, I hope we figure but it out. But everybody, hopefully that's listening, everybody knows what we mean. And like it goes from mm-hmm. like all that kind of like dark, you know, with this big party to immediately tangible characters. Yeah. Immediate warmth is what I'm trying to say. There's a warmth to it that you immediately feel like you're in a mystery, but it's comfortable. Yeah, it's comfortable. And it, it, you're excited about what's going to happen because you're like, ooh, all right. He he really sets the scene so well. Yeah, it's, it's really well done. And it's yeah. really, I mean, it's a film version of what he does so well with Are You Afraid of the Dark? You know, it's those, yes. he yes. wraps you up in these moments that feel so good, even though they're scary. And he covers a lot of ground very quickly. Yes, and that too. Man, you were just setting me up because I am, I got a lot that you're going to like, I think. I'm excited. Yeah, yeah. And again, I have this in my notes here. I don't know if it exactly fits, but I wanted to talk about the fact that there's this adult slant to the dialogue as also is common in 90s children's films. They didn't dumb things down very much for us. And that's something that you and I talk about a lot and that comes up right. a lot. Like it, it's just kind of understood. Like they under, they assume intelligence of their audience, which is mm-hmm. little kids. Very important to do. They're moving really quick. They introduce these adult concepts. They don't need to explain them. They just introduce them and they don't wait for you to catch up with them. Right. And that's something that I love. Like we just, as kids, somehow we inherently stood that like the bills have to get paid and the marriage may or may not last and people are going to flirt with each other. And yeah. we kind of understood the adults don't have everything figured out as much as we wished that they did. Like it was just a very clear thing to us. Yeah. And they didn't they didn't dumb anything down or hide anything from us, I guess. I'm sure they hid some things, but at the same time, it felt genuine. 
I see things now as an adult that I'm like lost. I'm like, oh, same. What's happening? I don't same. understand. <laughs> and it's weird to think like, well, yeah, I watched this movie as a kid and it it just made sense. It just makes sense. Something about it, it makes sense inherently. And they don't have to drag us along. Like today, yeah. you know, you watch a Disney Channel show today, which I almost can't anymore, depending on the time period, like the newer stuff. I can't watch kids anything today. Kids entertainment today. And I don't mean to be like kids entertainment kids today. Kids entertainment <laughs> today. Ooh. But it feels like that. Like the laugh tracks just drag you along to the next punchline and there's nothing between the lines at all. No. Like everything is just right out there. And I like things when they're between the lines. Substance. I like subtlety. I like that sort of storytelling. And so that's another thing that I personally miss a lot from 90s kids entertainment. I'm not trying to diss every single writer on TV in kids TV today, but it's like they seem a lot more concerned about what's going to land. And I feel like people back then were less worried about that. They just kind of went for it. So I liked it. I think there was still some more integrity within the storytelling. Yeah, maybe that's it. Whereas now... It's just everything is to set you up for a punchline. Everything. It's become so formulaic. Yes. Like... When we were growing up, I, I think this is true. I'm not trying to just be like, well, when we were kids, things were better. Like yeah. My parents are like, well, when I was a kid, the ice cream sandwiches were bigger. <laughs> I mean, okay, maybe. I'm not trying to be like that, although I am. Get off my lawn. But yeah. I think that we always talk about the boom in children's entertainment, and it was pretty new. You know, it was yes. sort of this this, this this renaissance of entertainment specifically for children. It existed, but this is when they were really like harnessing it mm-hmm. and trying to like make it psychologically like perfect. Yes. So a lot of the formulas that exist now have the 90s to thank for I would say that, yeah. systems it, they kind and of how figured they figured it out. out how to market entertainment to children. Yes. So now it's they don't have to worry about that because that is written out in a formula. Mm-hmm. They just plug in the formula. Exactly. Yeah. They're plugging in all the pieces. And now you're right. They're focused more on how to get the biggest impact, like the mm-hmm. biggest punch possible. Right. What's the payoff? What's the laugh? It's synthetic. And it's just one laugh to the next. It's plastic versus like wood or metal. Yeah. Too shiny and perfect. Too clean. Right. Too right. clean. It used to be on film. It used to be gritty in the 90s. <laughs> Uh, and I have, you know, I talked earlier about how DJ kind of bowed out of TV for kind of that reason. They weren't doing the same kind of TV that he was, yeah, he was accustomed smart. to and what he liked. And so he started doing kids books where he can do it his way. Um, and he said, yeah. honestly, he said the pendulum swings, you know, like with everything, with fashion, with music, with everything. Sure. Like sure. everybody, you know, same stuff that was popular in the early 2000s that I remember wearing in like third grade. That's popular now. Mm-hmm. But it's all cyclical. And that was his point. And he said that the pendulum is almost starting to swing back and he's starting to get involved with projects again that he feels are kind of bringing back that element that he was missing. Should we, should we reach out to DJ McHale? Oh, man. I would love to. And tell him our ideas. Because oh, he might DJ, be like, want to hey. work with us? Oh, Honestly, that would be no. incredible. We'll have, to, we'll have to discuss that. But I mean, yeah, we never... We haven't gotten into the whole 30-year cycle concept yet. I almost brought that into play with our children's programming mm-hmm. uh, origins episode. But that's a big thing. It is. In sociology and everything. But we're going to... We'll come back to that later. I think it really... Yeah. It plays into a lot of the stuff that we're going to talk about yeah. on the show. Yeah. Big deal stuff. So after we established that the Buzzy Crocker reporter character, he's staging these like National Enquirer type of stories. Um, apparently he like earned some no- notoriety among like the woo-woo set, basically. They're reading these tabloids. Yeah. And he's approached by this old woman named Abigail. Um, and she tells him that she was a witness to this disappearance at the Hollywood Tower Hotel in 1939. 
and she wants him to cover the story and hopefully get his journalism career back on track. So she's trying to tell him, you know, this is a supernatural story, but it's hard hitting and this could help your career. Essentially, she's begging him to come and investigate the story. Mm -hmm. And so Buzzy decides to get on board with this. And he visits the hotel and meets the caretaker, who is the great-grandson of the owner of the hotel. And he's the grandson of the bellhop that disappeared in the incident in the 30s. So this is the first time, like, we get a glimpse of the out the hotel and the outside of the hotel and the grounds of the hotel. And it's, like, it still is not clear to me what exactly was filmed on property in Orlando and what wasn't. Mm -hmm. I believe a lot of this was not, but it looks so much like it was that it's shocking. Yeah. So good on that production designer. Right. But you remember earlier when I said that they supposedly, a cast member told me that supposedly they filmed at an old hospital yeah. uh, for the gates and that whole moment where Buzzy drives up and goes into the gate. Right. Myth is busted. Not true. Myth busted. So what actually happened with the gates is a pretty cool story that DJ has told in a couple of his interviews. But basically, they were looking to create a replica of the gates that are at the attraction in Orlando. And I mean, if you've been to the attraction, you know it. They're very iconic. There's the two pillars and the iron rock gates in the middle. Yeah. So they, they were looking to recreate that. So by complete and total happenstance, just absolute coincidence, they went into this fabrication, like an iron fabrication place to get the gates made or to, you know, look into options there. And they learned that this was the same company that had been contracted by Disney to build the gates for the attraction in Florida. No way. Way. <laughs> so they are like, that's amazing. Like, you've already made these gates. We just need you to make them again. And they said, actually, hang on a second. We think we still have the backup gates that we made for the attraction. Wow. And DJ says so they literally like went into this like junky pile of like iron <laughs> and stuff and brought out the it. exact gates from the attraction for them to use in the That's film. amazing. Incredible. Just Here total happenstance. Wow. But I mean, don't feel bad if you couldn't tell the difference because that was me. I was like, I could have sworn that was done in the park. I was kind of disappointed to learn that it wasn't. It looks just like the park. It's because it's an exact replica. Wow. It's the exact same thing. You could never know from the limited angles that a camera is going to give you. Right. You could never tell which is which, which is wild. It's almost shot to where you might assume it was filmed in the park. Yes. Because they don't show anything else mm -mm. surrounding no. the hotel. And that's the point because it's advertising the attraction. Yeah, it's crazy. So they, they want you to think it was there. So I don't feel as bad for being kind of fooled by some of like it. Like you never saw across the street. No. Ever. Mm -mm. You're just seeing right at the gates. Yeah. A couple of times we see that. But Weird. I thought that was a really fun story. And DJ that's does really too because I think he tells it usually. Because I mean, what are the chances? He'll be telling that story at 85 years old. Hey, if that happened to me, so would I. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, making a movie, it's so difficult to get everything to come together. So things like that really stand out. For sure. And the extra hard stuff, but the easy stuff for sure. Man. Okay. I'm building up a lot to it, but I got a great story at the end that kind of touches on both of those things. But for now, let's get into the dark stuff, shall we? Ooh. Everybody grab your flashlights. Grab your flashlights. Let's talk about some of the darkness in this movie. So the main premise of the film, it centers around a witch's curse. Yeah. And obviously also like the ghosts of the people that were in the elevator. Yeah. And it turns out as we move through the movie, while the ghosts are super scary at first, we get to know them better as their former human selves. Yes. But luckily, there are still plenty of other scares in the film beyond just the ghosts and this like supposed witch's curse. They're pretty spooky at first, though, for sure. They are. And I got really, really excited at the first moment where we meet the ghosts or one of the early moments where we're meeting the ghosts. 
there's this moment where you see Sally Shine, the little girl. She's like this Shirley oh, yeah. Temple character. I know what you mean. Um, yes. You see her in almost this like ghosty, holographic, hologrammy sort of swirly, twirly distance. And this is just like the attraction. Yeah. And at this moment, you can kind of hear Sally singing. It's raining. It's pouring. This is exactly what she does in the attraction. And... <clears throat> I'm sorry, I'm getting so excited, I'm like choking myself. <laughs> this is exactly like what's heard in the attraction. And it made me so happy because DJ pointed it out too. He said, if I'm not mistaken, that's exactly the audio from the attraction. Yeah. And for some reason, this sound, while I was rewatching it, I got full body chills mm -hmm. because it took me back to being a kid, just instantly being on the ride yeah. and ha being in the darkness of the attraction you know, being on a family vacation and like trying to pretend like I'm not afraid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm like a kid in the darkness hearing that it's raining, it's pouring. Like it was so, so scary, like so visceral God. for me. And it was very scary as a kid. Yeah. But watching the movie, I loved it. It made me so happy. And I loved that DJ appreciated that it was one of the few moments that are pretty much exact crossover of the attraction in the film. Yeah. I don't know. Like, you know, sometimes you can like feel yourself forming a core memory and like, you know, that's yeah. going to stick with you. <laughs> that is one of my Disney parks core memories. I don't know why, but it is. Yes. So I love that. Um, some of the other like iconic moments are also some of the darker moments of the film. Mm -hmm. One thing that most people will point out or bring up whenever they talk about this movie is there's a scene where Buzzy and Anna are exploring the kitchen of the hotel. Mm -hmm. There's this body on a table, like in a morgue. Yeah. And it sits up and it's headless and it's holding a meat cleaver <laughs> yeah. as if it's chopped off its own head. I don't that know. That was the moment I like by myself drinking a pumpkin beer, just like watching this movie last night. I was like, yeah. Oh, that's pretty dark. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, that's genuine. Pretty dark. I was like, this is okay. We're discussing this in the podcast. Oh, for sure. Cause that is one of the darkest moments in the movie. And it's very, it's um, very scary. Cause it lasts way too long. Yeah. It's like wheeling itself across the room yes. towards them. Yeah. It's super spooky. And I just, I immediately, I'm thinking of like a morgue and a body. And that's just mm -hmm. a lot for a kid to process. Like, you know, that those bodies aren't supposed to move, but what if they did kind of thing? Yeah. And it doesn't make clear exactly what happened to this poor man, um, why he is in the position that he's in. Oh, the story is yours to to tell. Right. Like it's not. It's not connected in to the yeah. plot line that we're following. So it could be whatever. We don't Unless know. Unless it was the, uh, the ritzy guy. You don't think it was him? Perhaps. Pretending to have his head? Cut off? Perhaps that was my that was my theory. That was what I was gonna say. That's my only theory to tie it back in. But if not, that's almost worse. Okay. <laughs> so the ghosts, their intention is to scare these people away. Correct. Because it's almost for their own protection. It's for their own good, right? Right. Get away from here. This place is cursed. Get out. But mm -hmm. if that guy is not attached to our main ghost characters. Right. What's that story about? That's what I want to <laughs> know. And that was my thing. I was like, it could go either way. I do think that it probably is him. Like he's posing in this really scary way. I'm going to go back and watch that. I want to see if his costume is the exact same. Yeah. Because I mean, it's a guy in a tux and so is the guy yeah. on the elevator. But this isn't Beetlejuice. Right. No. You know? So they're not like, you know, putting on crazy faces and trying to mm -mm. scare you away. They're all still appearing as themselves for the they most are. part. Yeah. What if that's just a standalone ghost by himself? There's a whole other story in the kitchen. Like Ooh, somebody was beheaded, maybe. Who knows? We're gonna. This is a mystery. We're gonna solve. This is a that's pretty dark mystery. Hey, and uh, welcome. We'll solve any crime by dinner time. No, that's still oh, Mary Kate Nicely.
just bringing it home today. Oh, yeah. All the circles, getting them all closed. So anyway, yeah, that moment to me, I was like, I was like, okay, wow, this movie is pretty dark. It is. And, it, you know, it's those moments that kind of jump back out at you when you're rewatching. It doesn't feel like it should be that dark, but there's definitely like a line. Another moment that stuck out to me. And like I said, I'm just going to kind of outline some of the real spooky moments in this film. In that same sequence where the ghosts are trying to scare them away, particularly Anna, she goes in alone and the ghosts are like surrounding her. Yeah. And the nanny lady, very creepy, very odd line as well, because she's like, you've been a bad girl. Yeah. It's a lot. What has she done? (laughs) But she's basically pushing Anna backwards toward an empty elevator shaft that is also like filled with flames it's like on fire (laughs) i don't like flames i don't like fire i'm afraid of fire i've always been afraid of fire and also hellfire but we won't get into that one day so pretty much anything (laughs) pretty much anything in that realm is gonna it makes you question the uh intentions of the ghosts they have this whole like oh no we were just trying to scare you off right but there was that moment where they're backing her up into Mm -hmm. a flaming elevator shaft right so it's like uh, maybe you were about to kill the, her. There's always different motivations for ghosts in different types of portrayals in TV and film. Like sometimes yeah. they're, they have the unfinished business. Like these guys, they're trying to get to the top of the right. hotel to go to the party at the tip top club. All of these elevator riders, that's their ultimate goal. And that's why they're stuck. They can't get to the party. By 8.05. By 8.05. What a weird <laughs> yeah. time. Which I thought was really funny. And I meant to point that out. There's like an invitation where you see 7.30 sharp, but then they say the party's over at 8.05. And I was like, that's really funny. It's a 30 minute party, 35 minute party. Be there or be square. Which is funny when you consider that they had very little time to actually shoot the party which made me laugh in my own like research of this because i kind of knew the backside of it yeah but yeah in the film for whatever reason the party is very short and they are missing their uh opportunity to get there so some ghosts are malicious and want you to join them in the afterlife and then some ghosts are just trying to complete a task or whatever and then some ghosts are just sad and or angry and they relive you know an event or whatever so some ghosts are still alive (laughs) some ghosts are still alive like you and me like us but ghost wise those are some of the really like haunting things that i remember seeing as a kid and being like oh my god because just fire in general hell and all of those things were very very scary yeah it's just like a scary visual like something else that stuck in my mind and i think it was meant to be this way I'm going to try to get through saying this without any spoilers, but there's this flash of um, this obsessive behavior that they give to the antagonist in the movie and a reporter, and I'm being vague for specific spoiler reasons, but the reporter finds a bunch of this memorabilia that the antagonist has like collected over time about Sally Shine. And it's all like all these clippings from newspapers and different stuff about Sally. And on this memorabilia are words written in red, like, suffer (laughs) which is really a lot yeah it's pretty heavy and it's like the you know the uh yarn string note board trying to figure something out except that obsessive quality and clearly with malicious intent because there's even a doll um of sally shine a doll with like golden curly hair and her like head is falling off right the throat has been slit to the point that the head is barely hanging on she's like nearly headless yeah like nearly headless just enough for you to like tilt the doll back and the head to like fall back yes yeah which is a weird visual in and of itself but the obsessive like stalkery slant really bothered me as a kid and and now again a lot of my core fears are the same and that's a huge one that i have it's the obsession the yeah. obsession and the idea that they they are seeking out this girl to make her apparently suffer. Like, that's a lot. Their personal goal is There is, is a personal vendetta, and that is 
Very scary to me. And in fact, this is the one moment that DJ said that he was given any comment on at all out of the whole film. This is the one moment that they said might be a little bit over the line, Mm -hmm. but they still let him proceed with it. And as I was watching it, you know, I remember thinking as that moment kind of freaked me out, it happens impossibly quickly. So my thinking may have been maybe they took out a shot or two. And so the flash that you do see of this memorabilia is very quick. And I feel like that might be why. Yeah. And then he said that there were some reviewers of this film that like told him or were saying in the, you know, in the reviews and articles that it wasn't scary enough. Yeah. And the he said that he remembers reading a review specifically that was like, maybe it's scary to an eight-year-old. And he was like, yeah, that's because it's made for eight-year-olds, nitwit. Like, <laughs> that's what yeah, he said. Right. He's like, that's that's the point. Good job. It's you not found meant it. to be a big horror film. Right. Um, it's meant to be for eight-year-olds. It's a family-friendly Halloween flick. Come on. Exactly. And he also laughed as he was talking about that because he was like, you know, I never got any flack for people saying that I didn't make Are You Afraid of the Dark scary enough. Right. (laughs) (laughs) He was like, apparently I did something right, which I thought was funny. Um, So, again, in an attempt not to spoil the film for you, the listener, I'll just say from here on out, Buzzy and Anna, they befriend the ghosts and they spend the rest of the movie attempting to fix the elevator by solving the riddle of the witch's curse and try to get the ghosts where they were going to that party that I mentioned. And they're trying to save the hotel from moving and decay because essentially the estate says that it's not going to open the doors again until the mystery is solved of what happened to Dewey, who was the grandson of, or who was the son of the owner of the hotel, I should say. Right. And then they're also trying, obviously, to restore Buzzy to his former journalism glory. (laughs) And like I said earlier, it kind of has everything that I like. I had in my notes right here that the movie reminds me a lot of Clue. Yes. And there's also this Disney Channel original movie that came out in 2002 called Get a Clue. Uh, with Lindsay Lohan okay. and Bug Hall. Oh, okay. And um, it's one of my favorite Disney Channel movies. And it is also all about like journalism and spy kids kind of esque, like solving a mystery, figuring it out for like a high school project. But it has that same, there's this bumbly cast of characters and what are we going to do? And that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's fun. Yeah. Okay. Now it's time to nerd out on filmmaking. All right. Because this story I've been excited to tell Christian since I put it together and was trying to work on these notes. So I'm, I've been pumped for this story because Christian and I have made movies together. We know what goes into making movies. And even if you've never made a movie or if you don't, you can appreciate the fact that a film isn't made unless a group of people works very well together. Yeah. Basically, it takes a lot of teamwork from a lot of different people. And every person's job is very important. Um, every person does a very specific task mm-hmm. that is a cascade of everything else. So if one person doesn't do their task or their job the way that you would hope, you know, it can kind of have a domino effect. Yes. And that's true of most things. But I feel like in film, it's just very, very important to have that like yeah. teamwork dynamic. Lots of films don't get made for that reason. And I personally, having directed a feature film, there are these moments where everybody's working together and you feel that like click And it makes everything else worth it. However frustrating and difficult all the other elements are, when you have those moments where it all is working perfectly, you're all caught in the moment of the story and the camera's rolling and everything's working. Yeah. That is a feeling like no other feeling. That is one of my favorite things in the entire world is to be in those moments. It's just like being at like a concert and hearing your favorite artists perform your favorite song in person. Yeah. Something about being in that collective live experience together is really important to me. It's very spiritual. It's very spiritual. 
And apparently, it's also very important to our friend DJ. Ooh. He said that his favorite directorial story ever came out of this set in this film, which is saying a lot because he's directed a lot of stuff. And this is a made-for-TV Disney movie. Yeah. But he said that the Tip Top Club party, the party that we open the film on where you see everybody swirling and twirling and the big band and all that stuff. Um, he said this was one of his like most ambitious scenes in the whole film because there's a lot of movement. Yeah, it's a lot of people. A lot of people. And he knew that he had to make it a big swinging party because this was establishing the whole cadence of the film. This is telling you so many small things about the way that the film is going to pan out and the way that it's going to work in this opening sequence with all these people. Mm. He knew it needed to be like this big swing party. And I, <laughs> in my notes, I have a swinging wake, if you will. And <laughs> so he basically was talking about how, the, again, the budget was tight and he had exactly one morning to get this whole party. And he had like a shot list of a ton of stuff he needed to get out of this party. And he was saying it was a lot of pressure on him as a director. And I, on a much smaller scale with a much smaller budget, um, I know this feeling where it's, you have this one time to get this scene, you have all the people where you need them to be and you can't mess it up because you can't come back tomorrow and get it. He was saying we couldn't even come back later that afternoon. He was like, this was the only opportunity to get everything he needed for this Just scene. Just one morning? Do you know if this includes that entire location i believe all of the so. tip top club stuff i don't know for sure i would because be this is the opening time. scene and this like is the opening the scene and one scene. of the closing scenes so there yes there's a lot to it i don't know i think that some of it was filmed separately okay that's a lot to get in six hours so much Whew. um and that was kind of his thing he said that he at one point was like really sweating it because he said that he was needing these insert shots of people's feet and the movement and the crossing camera and all the stuff that he needed to get. Yeah. And he just wasn't getting it. He said they were focusing on these small moments at each table and like little things. Mm -hmm. But he said that they just weren't getting it and he knew they didn't have time to get it. And so he was freaking out. He was like, we're not going to have it. We're not going to have enough to make it what it needs to be. We're going to have to rethink the whole opening sequence. Like he was stressed. Wow. And he said that they were working on this particular Steadicam shot where they were going to follow this girl with cigarette. He said, go back and watch the film and find it. And I mm -hmm. had just watched it. So I knew exactly what it was talking about. Um, but there's a moment where they follow this girl who's smoking a cigarette. They follow her to the next table. Mm -hmm. And then she's got the party bustling around her. And there's some background interacting. And then they kind of run off screen together. And so they've been doing the shot. He said they did three or four takes on the Steadicam. And <laughs> I knew this would mean a lot to Christian because he's worked in a lot of these roles on film sets. He said they didn't have enough money to have a video village. They didn't have enough money to have a monitor with the picture anywhere else. Mm -hmm. So he was following this, the cam op, oh um, following the steady cam and watching the little like screen on the steady cam to see yeah. if they got the shot or not. Wow. And so he said they did it three or four times. And <laughs> he said in this moment on his fourth take, I loved how he described it. He was like the film gods just shone down <laughs> from the heavens and gave him this moment of inspiration. He said it happened so quickly that he almost didn't realize that he was thinking to do it. He said wow. it was just this moment where everything clicked in his head and he knew what he needed to do. And he said on take four of this sequence where he's following the Steadicam guy, just before he would normally have said cut. And of course, if you cut this big scene, to explain for anybody that that is unfamiliar, if you cut a big scene like that, you're stopping playback. So they've got music playback for the dancers to play to. So you stop that playback. Everybody's in a different position than when they started. So you have to take everything back to the top and reset everything. Mm -hmm. So each 
time you reset a take, it, it's a big process. He said just before he normally would have been like cut, he said he just pushed the steady cam off. He pushed him by the belt mm -hmm. and he said, let's go. And he just moved forward out of this path that he's been doing for these takes. He just wow. moved into the party. And he said, everybody somehow miraculously kept doing what they were doing. They hadn't cut the audio. They, they still had playback. Mm -hmm. And he said, everybody stayed in character. And he said, everybody, probably 50 to 100 people in that moment. Yeah. Everybody, he stepped out of line and everybody just starts winging they it. He just went with it. Yeah. So he said that he pushing the steady cam guy, just telling him what to get. And the steady guy, steady cam guy is walking through the party, getting people's legs and feet swirling. And he said that they captured the whole party documentary style. Wow. That's impressive. I have to yeah, explain for anybody that doesn't know, this does not happen on film sets, especially big film sets like that. Everything is blocked out and like figured out to a T before you start for the most part. Um, it's very rare that you do things that you're not expecting to do. I've seen it, but it's it's rare. It's yeah, it's just a rarity. But that sounds very hard. <laughs> it's I mean, it's one thing to do that when you have a couple people and you've done a scene a few times and you have a few takes and you want to get something different. I've probably yeah. done that as a director too. But yeah, yeah, to yeah. do it in a room with that many people. When you're on a time crunch. You're having to rely on background actors to continue doing what they're doing. background actors, yeah, they're not always. Uh, Sometimes they're not as experienced. So yeah. it's just, it can create a lot of problems. But instead, he said that they just, everybody was winging it. That's amazing. It was like three minutes, he said, where they That's just kept going. Yeah. Which is a long, long time. Um, rather than do this whole camera setup and restart everything and because everything is set specifically for lighting and all the cues, everybody knows where you're going to be for the most part with the camera. He said the AD and the producers started to catch on to what he was doing. Mm -hmm. So they started helping people filter around the camera. That's cool. And trying to choreograph it for them in the moment. Yeah. So that they could keep going and nobody would mess up the shot. That's essentially. so cool. That's so many moving pieces for people it's who so are going, many what pieces. do I do? Wait, what? Right? We're still rolling. Yeah. What do I do? Yeah. Nobody and so for them to just kind of like pick up on it and be like, okay, now you cross camera. Now you cross yes. camera. Go, go, go. Yep. They just, that's pretty cool. They figured it out and they started doing it with him. That's pretty cool. And he cool. said after like three minutes, he said that they finally tapped, he, he tapped the cam off and he was like, we're done. We're done. Like he just stopped him and then he finally cut everybody. Wow. And he said everybody on that set like burst into applause. That's amazing. Because they all knew what they'd just done. And it was, <laughs> he said that there was no way they would have gotten the shots they needed if he hadn't just done that and like That's cool. made it work. I like that. And it, it's a miracle because even in just the film sets that I've been on, you anticipate a director saying cut at a certain point. Once you've seen the scene, you know when the scene's quote unquote over. Yeah. And a lot of times, I mean, on a good set, they won't, but. Not to say that I've been on bad sets, but on a good set. people people have a tendency to go ahead and cut the audio or go like they you're you're, you're kind of prepping. you're prepared to relax at a certain moment because you've done it a bunch of times. But exactly. when they don't call cut, you're like you, you're looking around like wait did he say cut yeah I missed but it. But to me that was just because he said it was his greatest like directorial story, and I think that is too cool. Like that is, ever, I, I understand that's fully awesome. why that sticks in his mind. And if I mm -hmm. ever have a moment like that. Do you know how early on that was? Or if that was later? He probably did mention it, but I don't remember. No. I don't know. Cause I knew that it was, they were moving to other places and this was a location that they had. So it was when they were filming a lot of the wow. on location stuff and it just, they didn't have time. Wow. Like he would have wanted to have. Wow. And he said, if you go back and look at the scene, he said, he's not kidding. Probably nine to 10 of the shots that they use to make that opening sequence feel so big and warm. And the, you feel the movement of the band and everything. He said, he thinks nine or 10 shots 
came out of that one take. Wow. Which is wild. That's insane. Yeah. So that was, I've been so excited to discuss that because I think it's super cool. And that is cool. It's cool to come out of a, a small film like this too. Yeah. But, you know, overall, the film, I think, does a really good job balancing the spooky horror with a decently involved plot line. Like, there's a lot to it that it's, you know, it's got some twists and turns. It's not just a really straightforward thing. Um, it leaves you guessing yeah. a little bit. And they had a cast that was able to really elevate the material. I really like Melora's character and her, her whole role is really fun. Yeah. So worth watching if you're like an Office fan and you've never seen her in this role. Like, it's pretty fun. Yeah, she's a very talented actress. Yes. <laughs> she's very good. And DJ actually talks in these interviews about the fact that this film received very little promo. He said that it came out one week before the live action Cinderella with Brandy. Wow. And all the pr promo budget that Disney had was going to that movie at the time. Yeah. So they got very little. And he said that when they gave them the time slot of October 26th at 7 p.m. on the Sunday before Halloween, DJ said that he kind of did the math for a second and he realized that if the World Series went to seven games that year, that they would be competing with the World Series. Wow. And they were in the end. Um, that's exactly what happened. So he feels like, based on the lack of promotion and the fact that they were up against the World Series for a made-for-TV movie, he said he thinks that that's a large part of why the film was relatively unnoticed at the time. Yeah. But thankfully, even now, decades later, you find a way, just like we I mean, have yeah. and we are. I just We both just watched it this week. And another really fun fact, this movie has a special place in DJ's heart because... Guess what? What? He met his wife while he was filming this movie. No way. Yes. DJ, you dog. <laughs> it's the most perfect story. It sounds like me, honestly. It's just so World good. World Series kind of stuff? It's can't eat, can't sleep, reach for the stars, over the fence, World Series kind of stuff. <laughs> World Series. Competing with the World Series. Because oh, he said that they left the office. He was working with the editor and they left the office on the Disney lot like late at night. And he said they were walking through the Disney lot, like the back lot, you know, with all the sound stages and everything. And I've, I've done some of the back lot tours in LA and it, there is something really special about just being on that ground. And it's like, it feels very sacred in a way. Yeah. Um, this is where so many things that you love kind of come to life. And he said, so he's walking with his editor and they round this corner and they see in the distance this like shining shimmering Disney logo that was on the outside of one of the sound stages or something there was some kind of emblem yeah. that brought them to the magnitude of the moment that they're working on a Disney project and he said <laughs> that at that moment this car comes rolling by and he said that the, the window rolls down and this woman who later became his wife just goes isn't it great to be part of the Disney magic wow <laughs> Like she saw him seeing that thing <laughs> and like made a comment about it because she was on the lot as well. So that's how they met. And I think that's really fun. Nice. And he said that he also remembers taking his daughter on the Tower of Terror ride in California when it was still Tower of Terror. And he basically told her that if that ride didn't exist, then she wouldn't exist either. Wow. Which is so great. <laughs> that's so funny. And apparently he also got in trouble with her because he thought it was going to work like the one in Florida and prepared her for yeah. a different setup than is what happened. He said that she probably never forgave him for that because she he essentially told her when they were going to drop and that was not correct oh, and yeah. <laughs> so it freaked her out oh it's pretty funny yeah pretty great so he said multiple times in these interviews that he's like a disney geek too which makes me happy that's cool he really seemed like he was dedicated to honoring the lore and the experience of the attraction itself but he also wanted to bring his own style to it which i think he did with flying colors yeah i would say like reading about and exploring the film and hearing him talk about it like made me love him even more like i have been a huge fan of his just based on are you afraid of the dark but mm -hmm. i have certain people that i admire celebrities whatever 
that I really like look up to or appreciate, but I also feel like I have these weird connections with them. Mm-hmm. And I feel like he's one of those people yeah. down to directing a lot of corporate videos. <laughs> he talked about <laughs> yeah. having, having directed a lot of corporate videos wow. in a prior hey, lifetime. That's how you're getting your start. I thought it was pretty funny that we have that much in common yep. and I would be absolutely honored if I ever got to speak with him. Cause he's totally a legend in everything that he's done with children's horror and in general on yeah. TV. What a guy really. Yeah. So, guys, if you are a fan of Tower of Terror, the movie or the attraction at all, which I hope you are, even if you weren't when you came into this, I hope that even though you can find this information in other places, I hope kind of compiling it for you allows you to take home something spooky that you didn't already know. Fingers crossed. Oh, I also hope that, too. And I want to say thank you again um, to all the humans that were involved in the film and the Disney Coast to Coast and Beyond the Mouse podcast because they really dug out a lot of this info that I would not have had access to had they not done that. Um, And I'm really glad that DJ is still willing to talk about this stuff. I think that's super cool. For sure. So really, I'm just like grateful for all the podcasts and films and people. We're just walking in people's footsteps, like trying to keep making magic for people that are nostalgic like we are. Oh, yeah. So I love it. But yeah, that's what I have for you about Tower of Terror. Hope I didn't spoil it for anybody. Go watch the movie. I would say you did a pretty good job. Hey, thanks. For not like spoiling it, but the research was top notch. Hey. I'm excited for people to listen to this. It was a good time. It was fun to read about. I learned so much just now. What can I say? Good movie. Good movie. Good guy. Hopefully a decent podcast. (laughs) The best new podcast of 2021. Oh, man. Yeah. Anyways, guys, we hope you have a super fun, spooky October. Yeah. And we we can't wait to bring you something else spooky. Hope you're drinking your pumpkin beers and your pumpkin spice, carving your pumpkins and baking pumpkin bread. Mm, I'm going to make some um, banana bread, but I always do mine with like... A lot of cinnamon, spicy oh, stuff. So it's... I'll be doing some pumpkin bread soon, based off of your banana bread recipe. Oh yeah, I forgot that you did that. <laughs> you gave it to me last year, and I was like, "You're like, I'm why don't I just this? put pumpkin in this?" Pumpkin. <laughs> I still have a big old can of like. It was hard to find in 2020. It was hard to find last year. Yeah, I could mostly find yams. Well, thanks for listening, guys, and uh, you know, we'll catch you next yeah. time. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to That's Pretty Dark, written and produced by Christian Baxter-Mott and Kaylin Andrews. Our music is composed by Jonathan Simmons, and our art is provided by Paige Garland at Power Girl Illustration. Join the collective nostalgia and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at That's Pretty Dark Podcast. Share your experiences and let us know what shows, films, or villains still haunt you from childhood at That's Pretty Dark Podcast at gmail.com. Remember... You're never really alone. So, until next time, sweet dreams, everyone. <laughs>